0: Hey everybody! Welcome to the Quacks Podcast. Have a, another episode for you today. Hope everybody's doing well out there. Um, hope things are uh, kind of rolling around as fall kicks into gear and people are kind of getting back to some normalcy. Hopefully, anyway. Today I have with me a new potential co-host named Steve Businger, and we have a really interesting subject to touch on. Probably something that we haven't talked much about on this podcast in the past. And that's viruses and the nature of viruses and maybe some alternative theories about, you know, what viruses really are. Because viruses are this really interesting thing. So we're going to jump into that. Uh, Before we do, Steve, do you want to tell the audience just a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got interested in health-related things? And uh, we'll go from there.
1: Yeah. um, So about 2012, I was um, a truck driver and was listening to a lot of podcasts and I heard Dave Asprey on one of them and just became interested in his he kind of like systematized he had like a narrative that that could um, explain a lot of things and so I just um, got interested in things from there and About like a year, I started... His forum was a really good place. People would talk about a lot of different things, a lot of different people. Uh, I got into like Jack Cruz. um, But there was one post on his forum, like Big Papa Chakra. And he had this really interesting quote. And it just always stuck with me. Um, Colin Wilson, in about 100 books written over the last 50 years, has explored these different states of consciousness and has argued... That the excitedly expectant state of consciousness of a child on Christmas morning is a model of the way the mind should function throughout life. He believes that true perception sees a world full of potential and beauty, and that it is the practical, everyday consciousness which is diluted. Hmm. So that quote just like really grabbed me and always stuck with me. And so I was like, you know, who is this repeat guy? You know, it took several years to kind of like come around to the repeat perspective but i mean now i'm enjoying it there's lots of like room and it's you know uh a very expansive way a lot of um other like you know diet gurus seem pretty dogmatic in comparison very like constricted Mm. uh you have like the set things and then that's it like there's not really a lot of Potential for growth.
0: So, were you interested in it from more of like a theoretical sense, or were you dealing with health problems that you were trying to solve?
1: Definitely more of a theoretical sense. I didn't really have any major health problems, although I definitely feel like my my health is better today uh, than it used to be. Uh, I so when I was into like paleo and and Dave Asprey and stuff like that, I you know was excited and was kind of like an evangelist for for stuff. You know, telling people about, you know, low carb and what you find is that a lot of people aren't really open to that. And I realize that it's because like nutrition is basically like my hobby. Sure. All right. Well, that sounds cool. Let's uh, let's dive into the viruses and stuff. All right. I think the easiest place to start is with Agenus Fonderplanets uh, because his lecture on viruses is what, what really made me start to to question everything. So, who, uh, his who, big, who is this aginist guy?
0: Like, is he a doctor or, or what is he?
1: Uh, he doesn't have any um, official credentials as as far as I know. So, is he just kind of like study
0: viruses or, I mean, what, uh, I don't know, I guess I'm just, uh, I mean, I've seen no, he's, some he's, of his stuff before, but I, I don't remember off the top of my head what made him kind
1: of like a virus guy. Well, I'll explain his, his interest in, in viruses in a moment, but... okay. Um, basically he's kind of uh i guess you could almost call it like, a, like a, a first wave or maybe even second wave health guru he uh basically healed himself of cancer using raw foods
0: okay interesting
1: um and the other thing to note about him too is that he he was a big like uh I guess what you call like like medical freedom advocate like he's he's the reason why you're allowed to to buy raw milk in stores in California. Oh wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I I have a lot of respect for him, uh, and he I actually uh, he died in in 2013, kind of like uh, somewhat mysterious death, if you ask me. Hmm. But uh, yeah, so he says that foods need to be alive. Like he doesn't. I don't think. Anywhere in his book, he recommends any kind of like cooking. And also, he believes that viruses, bacteria, mold, fungus, and I think even parasites um, are good. And in his mind, they're like the garbage men are our bodies. They clean up disease. And
0: that's that's crazy to me because viruses and bacteria and mold and fungus, I mean, you'd think those would be – those are the bad guys we're all taught, right? Those are the things you don't want. Um, so yeah. for him to say that they're there to clean up disease, or that they're the garbage men to kind of take—I mean, that's kind of crazy, right?
1: Yeah, it's certainly it's kind of like what a lot of people say about um, you know cholesterol being the bad guy in in heart disease. You know, it's kind of like like cholesterol's there, but you know, is he like just the fireman? You know, people a lot of people make that 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 model. So yeah, certainly these things are like coincident when we have diseased or weakened tissue then then yeah viruses and, and bacteria and, and fungus show up and whether that's a good thing or not i i don't really know okay yeah so oginus says we have about three hundred thousand viruses in us and i think he's talking about the retroviruses like the junk dna um he says that we produce viruses because we use them as like soaps or solvents they they help clear out issues Viruses aren't alive, so they can go into places that are too toxic for our other helpful pathogen buddies, like like bacteria and fungi. But the reason why we have so many different viruses is because each virus only clears out like a very small part of each cell. Uh, according to him, we only have one or two virus episodes going on at once, so it doesn't kill us. So I guess you can think of it like like Jenga, if you just have like the tower. You take out one piece, you know, maybe two or three, and then you put those pieces back and then you can continue taking out other pieces. Um, that way, like the the tower isn't gonna fall over because you're always putting pieces back. Uh, there's only a few taken out at a time.
0: okay, so um, so basically we have one or two viruses. Um, at a time, and they're there to do some kind of healing job. And if we had too many healers,
1: then it would be like taking too many Jenga blocks out. Am I kind of following? Yep. Yep. Okay. All right. So now we have like an idea for for why viruses might be good and not bad. Uh, but people are always asking, like, "Okay, well, so what about epidemics? Why does everybody get sick at the same time?" So there's this book called The Invisible Rainbow by Arthur Furstenberg. I haven't read it yet. Um, It was released in March of this year, which is, you know, really, really great timing. And the thesis of his book is that all epidemics occur because of large scale electrical or magnetic events. Before we were able to harness electricity, these events were connected to sunspots, solar activity, which is electromagnetic. So some examples to kind of give you an idea we have the radio age start in in 1918 and then we get a spanish flu we get radar in 1957 and then we get the asian flu pandemic in 1957 in 1968 we get satellites and hong kong flu pandemic so the idea of 5g being a cause for covid uh 19 becomes pretty obvious with this line of evidence and i'll talk more about that at the end all right um
0: well if I could, so if I'm I could s- if I could just say one quick thing about that real quick it it does seem like the people I know who are in some kind of high EMF environment tend to get sick more often and it's just my layman kind of observation uh, it does seem like high EMF and especially the not the so much the ones from cell towers, but more the Wi-Fi that the ones that you kind of have in your house seems to make people sick more often. I mean, have you noticed anything like that?
1: So I actually just uh, just purchased some some sensors and also uh, an EMF blanket. So I'm going to be getting some, some personal experience to to see if, if it really does make an effect for me. But uh, huh. lately I have been like, I'll, you know, turn off my phone. Um, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so that's about like electromagnetic forces and how they can cause disease. So, but Agenus' explanation for pandemics and plagues was pollution. So for instance, he talks about the around the time of the Black Plague in Europe, they started using coal in their file fires instead of firewood or peat moss. And coal is a great source of mercury. And, you know, we know that's, that's really great for everybody. So, you know, people got mercury poison, poisoning and then they had, you know, these viruses or, or maybe uh, bacteria. Because I think like uh, the bubonic, that's, that's a bacteria, I believe. Yep. The bubonic plague. Yersinia
0: pestis yeah. is the bacteria.
1: Yeah, it's actually kind of funny because every once in a while you see like these news reports about like the return of the black P- plague. Like we used to see them here in Colorado about like some some uh, prairie dog in Kansas mm. has has uh, bubonic plague or something like that. But yeah, nothing you know nothing nothing happens out of it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, if you see that, don't don't get worried. It's you'll be all right. <laughs> So you could probably like do this kind of analysis uh, with any pandemic or plague, the the whole pollution aspect, uh, and that's what a lot of people have been talking about um, for for today's pandemic. You know, like when it first came out, like the they were talking about the air pollution in Lombardy in in Italy. Uh, but I'm not sure how that would explain, for instance, like something like the the smallpox blanket scandal, like back when. <clears throat> um, the fledgling American nation was was allegedly giving, you know, contaminated blankets to the natives. Uh, so I'd be really curious to see what Ojinda says about that. See, I, don't, um, I I have read that
0: that small bo- smallpox blanket thing didn't actually happen.
1: Yeah, I, I've I've uh, seen that as well i haven't looked into it in any kind of depth but it makes
0: sense i mean there was no germ theory back then so the idea that they would kind of put (laughs) two and two together and be like ah we should infect these people it just seems far far far-fetched
1: yeah it's kind of like a retcon uh because it actually you know having a story like that actually would support the idea of germ theory that we have now so i mean yeah maybe it's a fake event to support a false theory But yeah, so aginist thinks that we get sick because of toxicity, uh, because we get poisoned. So Ray's perspective is that the immune system has an image of itself. And whenever anything disrupts that image or ruins the integrity of it, that's when you get inflammation and the immune system response. Um, and ideally, if you're healthy and young, then it's a transient and transparent event. It happens quickly, and you barely even notice it. And that's because, in his view, and there's also a couple other researchers, um, they call it either like the like the danger theory or like morphostasis. Um, and and in in this view, the immune system is responsible for remodeling our tissues when they lose integrity and become unhealthy. Uh, That's what autoimmunity is. That's why antibodies seem to, quote unquote, attack the tissue, because in order to remodel something, you have to destroy at least some of it. And that's actually what Agenis said about viruses. He said they take out little pieces of each cell, you know, that's remodeling. And that's why it looks like a virus is attacking tissue
0: yeah so uh, so basically to sum up it's a it's a new way of looking at the immune system and viruses and that kind of thing which is is like this immune system is this cohesive almost you know thinking Uh, thing that when you get hurt in some way it kind of goes there to fix it you know it's it's like this big fix it thing and that's that's shifting away from the idea of the immune system as you know a bunch of legionnaires manning the walls as barbarians try and you know engulf the body Uh, and and it's a it's an interesting theory but what do we like, what do we take from that? You know, I mean, is there any indication that this is, I mean, is this, is this like an alternate way to explain what we're seeing or are there actual, you know, like things that we can take away and say, oh, if we treat this way, you know, if we treat this disease this way instead of that way, we would have better results
1: with this new paradigm in mind. Yeah, I think it, it definitely does change a lot of things. Um, because then it's, it's less about fighting the virus, uh, or quote unquote, strengthening the immune system. And it's more about, you know, providing, uh, support for your body to kind of like undertake this alleged, uh, cleansing that happens. Uh, so, I mean, like it's, I think, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty significant. Um, to have like a a different working model okay you know in this kind of view the idea of like strengthening the immune system doesn't really make any sense because the immune system is as part of the it's all part of the same system of structure and energy there's no defense it's all part of this holistic body process and you know Vaccines don't really make any sense in this view either, because all you're doing is just injecting foreign materials directly into your bloodstream uh, without any kind of filtration by your own body. Bray talks about how, like, the the very first like vaccines, they would they didn't inject it; they just like they would just rub it into your skin, and that's that's how you got this this vaccination. They kind of uh, cultured it in like horse tissue. And then put it under a crown for like 20 years or something. And then and then in that culture, they just like rubbed it in your skin and it like made you immune somehow. Huh. I've never even heard of that. It's uh, crazy. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, so would you say,
0: you know, a lot of the antiviral quote unquote substances out there like, you know, elderberry or red marine algae, basically these aren't killing viruses. They're just strengthening you. And so then you no longer need the viruses is that kind of the understanding
1: well so i think in this perspective probably anything that has that is purported to have an antiviral effect is is it's going to be because of two things a it either is suppressing the immune system and either suspending or aborting this remodeling process or they're enhancing the remodeling process because i think like I've seen, you know, headlines where people talk about like elderberry actually being immunosuppressive. Hmm. And so it like basically it aborts the this viral process and it does so by suppressing your immune system, which is inducing the viral process. So probably the best thing to do is to do something that would enhance the, or like expedite or or stabilize the remodeling process. And like right now, the because this is such like an alternative underground view, it's you really have to read between the lines to to figure out which substances are going to be doing that, and then which substances are going to be suppressing the immune system.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's an interesting theory, and I don't I don't quite know what to do with it. You know, it's like I I don't know what to. <laughs> to take away from it i mean i guess if you just think about it differently it kind of orients you differently but a lot of the same stuff i would do if i was you know sick with the flu or whatnot would be the same you know it it wouldn't change so much other than maybe my thinking about it would be like you know instead of saying oh i'm sick i'd be like oh i'm i'm remodeling or you know whatever (laughs) so
1: yeah there's a different there's a different perspective which i think is important um because then like yeah you won't you won't have like all this this fear that we're we're being inundated with um i think i think that's that's important all right
0: well i have a a little piece that i want to read but do you have anything else to go over before we move on
1: uh, no, I think I, I covered everything. Maybe it'll come up later.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about Tamiflu. Um, I thought, uh, I've, I've been wanting to do a show or, or a little segment on Tamiflu for a while. And I just, uh, I think this episode is probably a good chance to do it because we're talking about viruses and stuff. Um, but Tamiflu has a pretty illuminating story, uh, on just, just what kind of corruption, can occur when science is done by, uh, I guess you'd say, those with a vested interest in the results. So uh, Tamiflu, it was approved for the treatment of the flu back in 1999 by the FDA. Uh, This approval was based on two randomized controlled trials. Now, later in 2003, a review of the 10 controlled trials concluded uh, that Tamiflu reduce the risk of lower respiratory tract infections, resulting in antibiotic use and hospital admission in adults. So what they did was that, you know, they they approved it on two trials, and then they did more trials, and the 2003 was kind of a review of all these trials. And the key here is they're basically saying that Tamiflu decreases the incidence of pneumonia and other flu complications and reduces the time that you spend at the hospital. And the reason this is key is because usually you don't die from the flu, like you die from the secondary lung infection, pneumonia. So, bottom line, these 10 studies, they're basically saying Tamiflu saves lives. And so, just for this story, remember that. Now, mm. if this is true, this is a very important medication, you know, so important that we should have it available Everywhere and anywhere, you know, governments around the world should stockpile Tamiflu. And it turns out they do. They, they spend billions buying Tamiflu to have on hand in case the world is hit with, you know, I don't know, some kind of Spanish flu or, you know, like what we just talked about, some kind of EMF disaster. And and they don't want millions of people to die if, if Tamiflu does that. Well, this seems like a good plan, and that was kind of the plan that was coming into fruition in 2009. 2009 was when H1N1 reared its ugly head and just started spreading all across the world. And if you remember, the really scary thing about H1N1, unlike COVID, was it seemed to be killing people who were younger than 65 years old. Now, you know it turns out that it was much less deadly than they first feared uh, and it didn't didn't get that crazy but tamiflu at the time was thought to possibly be a treatment and so the UK and the Australian governments they commissioned this charity group called Cochrane to do a rapid review of the evidence on tamiflu just to make sure it would it would work on H1N1 now as the review team began to work there was a criticism from a Japanese pediatrician on the team. Uh, He was named Dr. Hayashi. Now, he pointed out that the key piece of evidence which held up the entire conclusion that Tamiflu saved lives was based on those 10 studies from 2003, which it turns out not only were they done exclusively by the manufacturer, Rosh, in this case but 8 of those studies had never been published. And so this is where the story kind of starts to get juicy because when I read that I went, "Hmm, you know, maybe there's maybe there's something dastardly going on here." So back in 2009, the Cochrane team, they decide to request the data for those unpublished studies. And they just begin running into brick wall after brick wall. They talk to John Trenner and Carl Nicholson, both of which authored separate key papers on Tamiflu's effectiveness, both of which had never seen the primary data on the studies. And they basically say the statistical analysis was done by Roche and given to them. So the Cochrane team, they keep looking around. They get similar results from other authors. uh, And so they they decide to request the data from Rosh themselves, you know, in December of 2009, they say, Hey, we we want the the data. So Rosh says they'll give them the data. If they sign a strict secret confidentiality agreement, which Cochrane, of (laughs) course, you know, they refuse. And at this point, Rosh is starting to get some public pressure. So in a press statement, Rosh says, you know, we're going to release all the data. We're going to release all the study reports. Uh, you know, everything's going to be fine. We're super open. But, but behind closed doors, they're refusing to give any data on the Tamiflu's trials. And and this goes on for three years. Now, before I go on in the story, I just want to mention one thing, which is I am getting a lot of this information from this website called bmj.com, which uh, was spearheading this news story on Rosh and Tamiflu. So they get, you know, all the credit for figuring this stuff out. So, they were publishing stories about rosh's refusal and you know them demanding the primary data in 2012 bmj really starts turning up the heat and they they put on more pressure to get that data and some really startling discoveries start to emerge so first the world health organization recommended tamiflu without vetting the primary data the cdc was encouraging the use and stockpiling of Tamiflu based on those 10 Roche-funded trials, but they had not seen the underlying data. In fact, it doesn't seem like really anyone had seen the data in any government organization. So in 2013, BMJ and Cochrane, their efforts finally pay off. Roche releases the study reports to them, and by April 2014, the data had been all reviewed, And I mean, can you guess what they found? After the review, the study showed that Tamiflu did not have any effect on flu complications or infections. In fact, it's big tagline benefit, like the thing that it was, you know, they said, hey, take Tamiflu because of this. It was that it lowered the time you had the flu by a whopping 17 hours, 17 hours. So not even a full day. And not only that, the review noted that the side effects of the drug may be worse than what they first thought. So that 17 hours was going to cost you uh, nausea, vomiting, rarely, maybe even psychiatric effects like delirium and hallucinations. And in children, an increase in suicide. There were like 100 kids or so who had taken Tamiflu and, and it was uh, attributed to be part of the cause of, of a suicide. So understandably, you know, this this caused a ton of uproar. And the silver lining, I guess you could say, is that just after all this happened, you know, policies were put in place, making it much easier to gain access to patient-level study data. I mean, that was the big thing. The, the uproar was we should have had this study data. Why wasn't it, you know, why was it kept from us? And so that's the silver lining is now study data is easier to get upon request. But there are a few really crazy things about this story that I do want to highlight, which is first the CDC still recommends stockpiling Tamiflu and says it's effective. I mean, that that's pretty nuts. The second thing is by Roche stonewalling and delaying on releasing the data, they probably made billions of dollars. Like the patent on Tamiflu, it ran out in 2016. So by just delaying a bit longer, a few more years before the truth came crashing down they could get just about the full life of that patent out. And I I wanted to get an idea of how much money they actually made. So I found uh, that Tamiflu was the 90th best-selling drug in 2013. And in 2018, they had around $400 million in sales worldwide. So you can imagine, you know, before the patent ran out, they were probably printing money. They were making a good deal more than $400 million per year. So... Anyway, I mean, that's it's kind of a crazy story, and stories like this can sometimes kind of get me down. I don't know about you, but when I think of just like evil people getting away with this, it kind of makes me depressed. But the the cool thing is just this year in January, uh, a United States whistleblower suit was brought against Roche for $1.5 billion. Now, that suit's probably going to take 100 years and won't get back a fraction of the money they made on Tamiflu. But you know, it's at least it's something. One of my friends actually suggested that what Ross should do is just sell Tamiflu and all of its, you know, rights to some other company, and somehow transfer the lawsuit to them. And this company has like you know two thousand bucks <laughs> in their bank account. Anyway, that would that wouldn't <laughs> be a bad idea uh, for the mustache twirling type. Now, the other silver lining in Tamiflu is it probably doesn't do it probably didn't do all that much harm, you know, at least compared to other stories like this. Like it, it wasn't Vioxx where it kills, you know, tens of thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands. I mean, it was it was basically just a drug that did kind of something and had enough smoke and mirrors to uh, bilk the, you know, the major governments around the world out of billions of dollars that you know, they spent stockpiling this useless thing. And I was, I was talking with my roommate about it and why this happened. And we were trying to kind of figure out, you know, what were the motivations and stuff. And I thought back to the nineties, which were such this huge boom in biotechnology. I mean, I was young at the time, but I remember it was just an era where there was a drug coming out for everything, you know? I mean, it was like, there was no horizon that, that we could not go towards. There was no there was no stone that we could not you know look under and find some cure for something so in 1999 you know there was a lot more trust in the system and i bet the fda they just didn't look too hard at a new drug for the flu and and, and not only that I mean, it gave governments around the world the ability to say, look, you know, we're doing something. We're prepared for the flu in case of a pandemic occurs. I, I mean, I remember in 2005, George Bush, he made a speech at uh, the National Institute of Health where he said, you know, he was asking Congress for more money to put towards antivirals like Tamiflu.
1: So, I mean, it was, it was a scam. It's kind of like uh, how you, you – they have like this saying, you don't get fired for hiring IBM, that's right. That's right. You know, I mean, it was it was a scam, but it
0: was kind of a scam that the scammies wanted to be true and made them look good. And, and even today, years later, you know, after the scam has been revealed, like, hey, Tamiflu is a scam, pretty much. I mean, the CDC and many others, they're still holding on to it. So... Anyway, I thought it was a it's, it was a really interesting story. And as far as I don't know whether you should take Tamiflu or not, I wouldn't. I mean, it just doesn't seem to do much. But I mean, I, I looked into what people's reactions were to Tamiflu online, and there are some people who are like, "Oh my gosh, I was dying from the flu, and after the first pill of Tamiflu, I felt amazing." At the same time, you can get stories like that about anything. So I mean, who knows? whether to believe them or not or or whether it was the tamiflu or whether it was just taking something that made them go oh now i feel better you know i mean there's there's a whole placebo effect and when it comes to the actual double blind studies it's just not there it's it's it just doesn't doesn't give you much so anyway what do you think of that
1: uh i thought it was really interesting their their justification seemed very reminiscent of what we hear today about um what 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 are they offering as a uh, as a cure not not the vaccine that's not uh, hydroxychloroquine hydroxy no um this was like you know from from pharma oh, i guess what was it rem whatever there remdesivir or yeah remdesivir yeah, okay. yeah so like they're they're uh they say like if you're going to recover from from covid You'll recover faster. It doesn't actually improve like survival rates. So it's like this the same contorted re- reasoning where you know it's it's really not a benefit. But you know it's like it's kind of like playing with uh, statistics to kind of get the to get them to to fit your narrative. Yeah, and and who knows whether it's true? I mean, in this
0: Tamiflu case, they they just straight up lied about you know less pneumonia, less lung infections. You know, they 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 just. That was just not true. I mean, the, the part that was true was that hey, it's going to shorten the time of the flu for you. Now, seventeen hours—whether that's worth the potential side effects—you uh, know, that's yes. that's the question. It's always it's always a question of risk and reward. I mean, sometimes. People get so caught up with what's true and what's um, false and what's logical and, you know, what story makes sense and stuff. But a lot of times, you, it's better to just take the perspective of, like, what are the risks here? What's the rewards here? And and if you look at it that way, you can know what to do in a much better sense than trying to figure out the truth. With people who are obviously do not have a ton of scruples uh, in saying, you know, whatever serves their agenda.
1: Yeah, it's the pharma's... Uh a great cash cow.
0: Definitely. All right, man. Well, I, I'm kind of, I'm spent. I don't have anything more. Is there anything else you want to add before we
1: go? Uh, just, uh, happy to be on and, and glad to, to talk about this stuff because I think it's it's really fascinating um, and I'd like to see what other people think about it.
0: Yeah, well definitely uh, people let us know. Let us know what you think. Send us an email at quackspodcast at gmail.com uh, You can also go to the website quackspodcast.com and leave a comment on the show itself. That's under the podcast tabs uh, and just let us know what you think. Uh, we appreciate the listen and we'll see you guys in a couple weeks. Be well.